You're listening to TIP. If you're thinking that you are going to, you want to invest in a tax advantage way, but you feel like you're probably going to need some cash for some big life changes in the near future, a Roth is definitely a good, a good tool for you to have. So if you want to max that out when you're younger and maybe your income's a little bit lower on the expectation that you're going to need it, you're going to need the money before you retire. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brian Martucci, who's the finance editor at Money Crashers, where Brian writes about investing, credit cards, banking, insurance, and other personal finance topics. During this episode, I chat with Brian all about how to invest in the most tax-advantaged way. We also talk all about life insurance and when it may make sense for a millennial to need life insurance, as well as other important ways you can use life insurance, such as being able to borrow against it or as an investment. With that said, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Brian Martucci. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and today I'm joined by Brian Martucci. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited for today's discussion. We have a lot of great topics to cover. I loved reading a lot of your articles, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for our listeners. So much great content on your website. And I want to jump into some tax advantage investing as our first topic today. So recently, we've been talking a lot on the show about what's happening in the current markets, what are the best investments right now. But I think just as important as learning what to invest in is how to invest in the most tax advantage and optimal ways. So I wanted to start off by having you talk about the two main tax advantaged accounts millennials should consider. So what are the main differences between them? And then how should millennials think about which to contribute to each year? So the two main accounts we're talking about for folks in the U.S. are uh, Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs. And that's kind of confusing. Uh, They're both individual retirement accounts, but they have some important differences that um, you should be aware of if if you're new to this space. So on the Roth IRA specifically, there's an income cap for contributions. And if if you're a higher earner, you make over uh, about $129,000 a year if you're single or about $204,000 a year if you're a joint filer, you can't... Well, you start to phase out um, and then pretty quickly, you can't contribute anymore. And a traditional IRA doesn't have that contribution limit. You can always contribute to a traditional IRA. The contributions aren't always tax deductible for your federal income taxes. There are income caps on those as well, which we can talk about in a moment. But that's kind of a big difference. You can't directly contribute to an IRA if you're a higher earner. The taxation on these two accounts is different as well. The biggest difference there is that your traditional IRA contributions are tax deductible in the year that they're made. So if you contribute, let's say you contribute $2,000 to a traditional IRA in 2022, you can deduct that from your taxable income on your 2022 tax return. And then you will pay taxes on the gains in that traditional IRA way down the road when you're retired probably and, and starting to take distributions from it. A Roth IRA, the contributions are not tax deductible in the year that they're made. So you contribute $2,000 to a Roth IRA in 2022, doesn't affect your, your tax liability for the year, but your gains way down the road are tax-free. So when you take a distribution, that money is tax-free, which is really nice. And any dividends in either account, um, any dividends or um, distributions from whatever you're invested in that go into the account are, are not taxed while the money is in the account. So that's why we call them tax advantage. They both have tax advantages. 
So those were great overviews of kind of the differences between the accounts. I think next, I would love for you to kind of go through different scenarios of how and when millennials should think about which they should be contributing to each year. Should they choose the Roth IRA, the traditional IRA, both? Let's walk through a few different scenarios and talk about each. Sure. Yeah. So I think we can break it down into three main scenarios and, you know, just blanket caveat here that you should always, you know, everyone's situation is different. So please do, you know, talk to a financial advisor if you're, if you have any questions at all about how to think about this. But uh, the three main scenarios that we can really talk about here are one, contributing everything to a Roth IRA, exclusively contributing to a Roth IRA. The second is exclusively contributing to a traditional IRA. And the third is to split contributions between the two accounts, however you see fit. So, you know, 50-50, 70-30. And importantly, for millennials, for the people listening to this podcast, I I would imagine we're all, I guess if you go by the strict definition of the generation, definitely under 50. And that's important because uh, for people under 50, the annual contribution limit to either type of account or both accounts in total. So any IRA is $6,000 per year. So you can't contribute more to any of the IRAs that you have. You can't contribute more than $6,000 in a year. So if you have a Roth IRA and a traditional, you can contribute $3,000 to the Roth IRA, $3,000 to the traditional, but uh, that's it. You can't contribute $6,000 to both. You can contribute $6,000 to just a Roth IRA or $6,000 just to a traditional IRA, but you can't contribute 6,000 to both. I think that, I think that trips a lot of people up. They think the limits are, you know, for each account, but it's, it's for both. When you're over 50, there's an extra thousand dollars that you can contribute to IRAs every year. It's called a, a catch-up contribution. And these limits, they tend to change, not necessarily every year, but they, they do go up. So you can bank that the 6,000 limit will go up at some point in the future. But um, for the, the first scenario, we can talk about contributing all 6,000 or as much as you can to the Roth IRA. You might want to do this because Roth IRAs are a little bit more flexible on how you can access the money. So we, you know, it's a retirement account and ideally you keep the money in the account for many, many years until you're much older, closer to retirement. But a Roth has more, uh, there are more exceptions, I guess you could say, for if you really need the money, when you can withdraw from the account. So. 59.5, is kind of the key age. There's a 10% early withdrawal penalty if you withdraw earnings from a Roth IRA before 59.5 if the account is less than five years old. So you have to kind of have to keep the money locked up for five years or you're incentivized to do so. But there are a few exceptions that millennials are, a lot of millennials will encounter in the near future. And the big ones are first time home purchase college expenses and uh, birth or adoption expenses. There are also exceptions for disability and some health-related exceptions as well. Uh, The first-time home purchase is limited to $10,000, I believe. So that's, you know, that'll help you get to a down payment, but unfortunately in in a lot of real estate markets, that's not going to get you your, your full down payment, but certainly helps. And so if you're thinking that you are going to, you want to invest in a tax advantage way, but you feel like you're probably going to need some cash for some big life changes in the near future, a Roth is definitely a good, a good tool for you to have. So if you want to max that out when you're younger and maybe your income's a little bit lower on the expectation that you're going to need it. You're going to need the money before you retire. That's a good, that's a good strategy. And then again, the Roth distributions when you're older are tax-free. So that is a nice advantage. If you feel like your income is going to be higher when you're older. So let's say you plan to keep working way past 59. Everyone wants to retire at 59 and a half, but realistically, most of us are going to be working longer than that. If you have that salary income, that's going to bump up your tax liability and any distributions that you take from the, the Roth IRA are going to raise that even more. So you're going to be taxed at a higher percentage on those. Or sorry, any distributions that you take in a taxable way are going to add to your tax liability. So the fact that Roth distributions aren't taxed is really helpful. Is one of the main benefits then of the Roth IRA versus the traditional IRA is that early withdrawal of contributions, you can fully take them out versus the traditional one, you're more locked up? 
That's right. Yeah, you, you also have more flexibility to take out the contributions. It's the withdrawal penalty specifically applies on the gains, so it won't be as hefty as if it applied to all the contributions, but that is still, uh, yeah, it's a huge benefit. There's just more flexibility on how you can withdraw in general. Right. And I think that could be very useful for, like you mentioned, millennials who are maybe thinking of saving for a home and they know they might need that money in the next mm-hmm. five, 10 years versus it being tied up. And then what about the next one? So the traditional IRA. Yeah. So a traditional IRA is sort of like, it's not quite a mirror image of the Roth, but it is a little bit different. And uh, that's really important. I think for millennials in the here and now, your contributions are tax deductible in the year they're made with a traditional IRA. So if you have a higher income now, it gives you an immediate tax break during the year. Let's say, you know, if you max out your traditional IRA and contribute $6,000 this year, that's $6,000 in income that is not going to be taxed on your, your federal tax return. There is an important exception to the tax deductibility of a traditional IRA. And we might talk more about employer-sponsored plans in a little bit. But if you are covered by retirement plan at work, so like a 401k is the most common one, then there's a limit on the uh, an income limit on your tax deductibility for your traditional IRA contribution. So those are similar. They're a little bit stricter than the Roth IRA contribution limit. So for a single person, if you make over $78,000 a year and you're covered by a 401k at work, even if you don't contribute to the 401k, you can't deduct your traditional IRA contributions. You can still contribute no matter how much you make but you don't get that tax benefit right now. If you're a joint filer, if you're married, it's a little bit more generous. So if only one spouse is covered, if you're filing jointly, then the deduction limit is about 214000 on your joint return. If both spouses are covered, it is 129000 on your joint return. So again, you can always contribute to a traditional IRA, but you just don't get that tax benefit if you're a higher income. But that said, um, it's still a great benefit for those who can who can take advantage of it. And because there's no income limit on contributions, a traditional IRA is something you can always put money into if you want to invest in a tax-advantaged way. And we can talk about backdoor Roth contributions in a little bit. I don't want to get ahead of myself there. And you know, none of us can predict the future, but a traditional IRA is really helpful for people who are pretty sure or, you know, fingers crossed, but really working toward um, being like retired, retired by the time they start taking distributions. And I believe you have to start taking distributions at around age 72. Um, So it's it's past retirement age. You can take them before that, but if you want to wait as long as possible so that your money has more time to grow. But yeah, if you're still working at that time and your income is still quite high, the tax that you pay on those distributions from your traditional IRA, that's going to be a significant hit. You're going to get, you know, your, your net is going to be a lot lower than um, you would like it to be. So uh, a traditional IRA is great to, to shoot for if you're you know, planning to retire before you start taking those distributions. What situation would make sense where a millennial might want to contribute to both? So I think the, the short answer is that if you're, you're not sure what you're going to be doing in 30, 40, 50 years, um, then it's uh, a good strategy to hedge your bets. If you want to you know, just split it right down the middle, if, assuming you're eligible for both, contribute 3000 to a Roth, 3000 to a traditional every year. That way, it's called tax diversification, where you're still going to have a tax hit on those traditional withdrawals. But they're not going to be. It's not going to be as big as if you would put all of your eggs in that basket. So you know, if you're not sure if you're still going to be working as you get older, and or where your tax liability is going to be for other reasons, then I would say go ahead and, and split them. So then you also mentioned the decision might change or be affected if an investor also has a employee sponsored plan like a four hundred one k. Can you talk a bit more about that? So a 401k is just a great retirement tool in general. It's a great tax advantage account. If you are eligible for a retirement plan at work, which a lot of a lot of people are, then those income limits to IRA, the tax traditional IRA contributions really start to bite. But I, I would say if you are eligible for a 401k, you should think very strongly about investing in it in addition to your your IRAs, especially if your employer matches your 401k contributions. A lot of employers 
will match a certain percentage of contributions. Uh, it's usually calculated as percentage of income. So you'll see a maybe 3% match, a 4% match, 5%. Some employers are even more generous. If you can contribute at least that, uh, that much to your 401k, you will get an equal amount of money from your employer. And that's the closest thing to free money that you're, you're ever going to get short of you know, an inheritance or <laughs> winning the lottery. It's just, it's sort of a no-brainer. Those 401k contributions are always pre-tax as well, or I should say they're usually pre-tax. There is also a Roth 401k where you can structure your 401k contributions as Roth contributions for tax diversification, but most people just stick with the um, tax deductible contributions, which is usually the default. So you can deduct whatever you contribute. You can't deduct your employer's match, but again, it doesn't really matter because it's basically free money. And uh, so I would say if you're trying to think about how to prioritize your investments, uh, your tax advantage investments, if you are eligible for 401k and you have an employer match, your first priority should be contributing enough to that 401k to get the full employer match. Those contributions come right out of your paycheck. So you don't really feel them as much. It's just, it's kind of like tax withholding for your paycheck. You're just, your net pay is lower. And um, again, it's, you know, it's basically free money. After that, then you can think about, do I want to contribute to a traditional, to a Roth, to both? And your next priority then should be, should be maxing out your IRA. If after you max out your IRA contributions, you can afford to contribute more to your 401k, then absolutely go ahead because that's going to further reduce your tax liability in the current year. And you can the you can contribute up to twenty thousand five hundred dollars in twenty twenty two to a 401k. So the tax deductible contribution limit is much higher than for an IRA, and that number goes up almost every year. So it will continue to increase by at least a few hundred dollars uh, every year. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, 
Wherever you go next, make it happen with a Smarter Travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So you mentioned that if you're over a certain income level, you can invest in the Roth IRA, but there is one exception and that's the backdoor Roth IRA conversion. So can you just talk a bit about who's eligible and when it might make sense to do this? A backdoor Roth contribution is a pretty common tool for higher earners to reduce their tax liability over over the long term. For it to work, you have to be above the income threshold to be able to deduct your traditional IRA contributions. So often the way it works out is if you file your taxes with a spouse, are uh, both one or both of you eligible for an employer plan, your traditional IRA contribution, uh, deductible contribution limit is going to be much lower. So you can still contribute to a traditional IRA, but you can't deduct those contributions in the current tax year. There's no benefit. However, you can transfer those contributions to a Roth account that you've opened and the money just goes into the Roth account and it becomes essentially... It's, it, the tax treatment then becomes like the Roth IRA tax treatment. So you don't pay taxes on the distributions way down the road. You also, for this to work, have to be over the eligibility limit to contribute to your Roth account. And so it really does affect... It's a benefit for... I don't have the number off the top of my head, but let's say top 10 or 15% of earners, I would think. But if you're fortunate enough to be in that echelon, it's a real benefit. I will say there are some... It's not super involved, but there's a tax reporting obligation that you have. You have to file a form for your cost basis with the IRS when you make those contributions. And there are certain... It gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, but there are certain triggers that can mess up the tax treatment so that you may end up actually owing taxes on your um, backdoor Roth conversions. Like if you do a, an IRA rollover from an old employer plan, that kind of gets off into the weeds. The last thing I'll say about that, though, is um, Congress has tried to do away with the backdoor contribution. It's really a loophole and they, you know, a lot of people don't like it. So they've tried to do away with it in the past. It hasn't been successful so far, but there is always a risk that the loophole will be closed and you won't be able to do this anymore. I imagine if, if that happens, everyone who, you know, who did the conversion in the past is probably safe, but you won't be able to, to do it moving forward or you'll risk uh, tax penalties. Can you talk a bit about how millennials should think about allocating their investments in each account? I think the best kind of the broadest way to think about it is that in your tax advantaged accounts, it makes more sense to have higher tax or tax inefficient investments in general. So yeah, dividend paying stocks are a good example. The one, you know, one example of a type of investment that you want to hold in your tax advantaged accounts is like an actively managed mutual fund that pays capital gains distributions that are then taxed as capital gains. If you have that in a taxable account, you have a higher tax liability even if you don't sell the mutual fund. So it's good to if you have if you want to invest in actively managed mutual funds, those are good to have in, in a tax advantaged account. And a type of investment that you wouldn't want to have in a tax advantaged account is um, so like a tax free uh, municipal bond. So if you have state or local bonds that aren't subject to uh, income tax, then um, there's no benefit to having them in a tax advantaged account. You actually lose the tax benefit because they wouldn't they wouldn't be taxed anyway in that account. So that sort of investment, which is fairly rare, especially for millennials um, who tend to take more risk with their investments. But if you have that sort of investment, you'd want to have that in your taxable brokerage account. Next, I want to chat with you about life insurance. You've written a lot of great articles on this topic. So can you walk us through what millennials might want to consider getting life insurance for and who might it not make sense for? It's a lot of different scenarios. You know, everyone's different, but there are a few reasons that you would you would want to buy life insurance as a millennial, even as a young millennial, like pre-kids, if you're planning on having kids. One is if you are the breadwinner in your household or you contribute significant income to a two-earner household. And that's especially true if you have dependents. 
because they're going to rely on that income moving forward. Another big one is if you have jointly held debt. So really common example is a mortgage that you've held with a spouse or is co-signed by a relative or student loans that are co-signed by a parent or even jointly held credit cards that are, you know, have significant balances that would be a burden on your survivors. And that even does include a like an apartment lease. Um, so even if you don't own your home, it's not automatic that if you share an apartment with a spouse or, you know, a, a family that the landlord is going to break your lease if you die, <laughs> at least. Uh, so your survivors will still be on the hook and that can be thousands and thousands of dollars if you die early in the lease. So all those kind of financial reasons are strong arguments in favor of getting life insurance, even if you don't really feel like you're, you're, close, you're close to death. Um, it's sort of an awkward topic to talk about. And also just kind of from a practical perspective, life insurance is pretty much always more affordable when you're young. Age is holding everything else constant is the most important factor in determining the costs of your, your cost of life insurance. So every year that ticks by is a year that life insurance coverage gets more expensive. And, you know, it's not like it's a one and done thing. You can buy a little bit of life insurance now so that you lock in lower premiums. And then if you decide you need more, perhaps because, you know, you have kids that you weren't sure that you were going to have, you can always get more down the road. It's also more common for life insurance companies, especially for younger folks, to just waive the medical exam requirement. So in the past, it has been pretty much standard that if you're getting more than a certain amount of life insurance, you're going to need to go through a medical exam. Now you can, a lot of companies offer like million dollar policies or even more um, without a medical exam. You'll pay a little bit more in your premiums because the insurer won't have as good of a sense of your the actual risk that you present to them, but it can still be a big benefit to skip that medical exam if you're frankly concerned about what it might turn up. Um, and life insurance companies are super picky, you know. So even like an anomalous result in your your screening, they can just be like, nope, they're not going to cover, <laughs> we're not going to cover you, or you're going to get a way higher premium. So that's sort of a risk benefit calculation that you can make. And then the last one is just that funerals are really expensive. You know, even a, a modest send-off, you're looking at $10,000 or more probably, all, all things considered. If you don't have that cash lying around, that can be a, a serious burden on your survivors. So then I'm wondering about the millennials who might not want to consider this at all. I think it's sort of, it's hard to predict the future. And my advice, which, it, you know, some people might take issue with is even if you don't think you need life insurance now, you, you probably will at some point. That said, if you're pretty sure you fall into one of the buckets I'm about to mention, then, you know, you can go without it. One is if you're single and you don't have dependents or significant debts, you know, over time, you're going to build up your network, especially if you're single and you don't have kids, <laughs> kids to pay for. And you'll just never, you'll never run into a situation where you're going to be a burden on it. Your debt is going to be a burden on anyone. You know, there will be a funeral, but that will be a manageable burden probably for whoever is, is going to be in charge of that. And again, even if you're you're in a like a partnered relationship or you, you have dependents, if your net worth is high enough that any you know, your death, your premature death is not going to create like an undue burden on the household then you're probably safe without life insurance although i will say that even if you're a you know you're a stay at home partner or parent you do your labor is valuable and you know the, the numbers people throw around a lot of numbers but it's like probably if you add up all the especially if you have dependents um you add up the child care component of that you're looking at like a six-figure contribution every year to the household so that is something to think about when you're gone there's not going to be anyone doing that labor. And so it might still be nice to have a life insurance policy so that your survivors can more easily manage the financial components of your absence. What about someone who doesn't have kids yet, but they know they're planning to in the future? So what are your thoughts on should they buy life insurance now before the child arrives or wait until after? I would say it depends on your age and your net worth. That's the short answer. The younger you are, the more time you can afford to wait because premiums will still be relatively low. But at the same time, when you're younger, you're also likely to have a, a lower and maybe even negative net worth where life insurance will be really helpful 
because you won't have cash lying around to cover the expenses that you might leave behind. You know, you can kind of look at it. Here's just throw out throw out a hypothetical. Let's say you're 27 and you're partnered up and you are thinking about having kids in the next, let's say, five years. You could probably wait until the kids arrive, you know, let's say you're 33 and you can start to think about, okay, this is how much daycare is going to cost. Here's how much college is going to cost way down the line. You'll have a better... Your household expenses will make more sense to you at that time. They'll be more... They're more abstract when you're single and you know you want kids, but you, you kind of can't... It just, it just seems like a foreign situation. But on the other hand, if you're older, so let's say you're like 39 or 40 and you want... You really do want to have kids, but it's not imminent and you know, you're looking well into your 40s, maybe maybe even adopting or surrogacy. It's kind of a, a brutal calculation, but you might not want to wait. You might want to get life insurance now and so that it's there when you're ready. Especially if you're thinking about having kids on your own, you might not, you know, you're not going to have a second income to, to help out. And so it's all the more important that you have some financial protection for your future children. Now that we've talked about who might want to buy life insurance, can you discuss the different types of life insurance? So there are two main types, um, term life insurance and permanent life insurance. And within permanent, there are several different subtypes. Uh, I think the one that most folks have heard of is whole life insurance. Then there's also universal life insurance, variable universal life insurance. The biggest difference between term and permanent life insurance is that term life insurance has a fixed term. So you'll see references to like a 10-year policy, a 20-year policy, a 30-year policy. Um, Usually it's between 10 and 30. You can renew the life insurance policy after the initial term ends, but it'll be like astronomically expensive. So the vast majority of people who get term life insurance, they just care about being covered during that term, you know, whether it's 10 years or 30 years or something in between. And if they outlive it, which is, you know, a good thing, really, then they're not covered anymore. And unfortunately, the premiums that they paid into the policy usually just disappear. You don't get them back. You can get what's called a return of premium policy where you get your your premiums back, but that costs a little bit more. um, So that'll raise your premiums. For permanent life insurance, and we can we just use the example of whole life insurance, the term is indefinite. It lasts basically your entire life as long as you continue paying the premiums. Some life insurance companies will cut it off at like the age one age one hundred or even older, but most people most people don't make it that long. And your permanent life insurance, your whole life insurance policy builds cash value over time really, really slowly at first. But it does, after you know a f- few decades, it'll be a significant nest egg that you'll be able to... You can withdraw from, or more commonly, people take loans against it. It's sort of like having equity in your home that you've lived in for a while without all the hassle of home ownership. So it's kind of nice. We can talk more about you know, how it actually stacks up as an investment, but it is, you know, technically a long-term investment that can kind of sit alongside your other, your other investments. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. For millennials wondering how should they decide whether to go with a term policy or whole, I know there's a lot that goes into that, but is there any key things that you can kind of just help them first think about? Yeah, sure. I would say that uh, term life insurance is better for kind of the average millennial who is planning a family or has significant joint debts that they want to make sure are taken care of. That way you're covered for the entire term. So let's say you're 30 now. If you get a 30-year term life policy and you continue paying the premiums, you'll have life insurance coverage until you're 60 years old. And that is usually enough time as people continue to work, they get raises, they pay down debt. If you have a mortgage, you know, you'll be paying down your mortgage and you'll have a lot of equity in, in your home eventually, ultimately. By the time you get into your 50s and 60s, a lot of people have a pretty high net worth and, and if they die, they're close to retirement, so they don't have to replace very much income and they have a, a lot of money sitting around that I shouldn't say a lot, but you know, uh, you have a positive net worth that can pay for your funeral, can leave your surviving spouse or independence with an inheritance that they can use, you know, to sort of make up for your absence. And so that's why term life insurance is a good bet for most folks. Permanent life insurance is good if you, um, especially whole life insurance, if you want the extra assurance of having a parallel investment like bucket of money that is not directly tied to the stock market. It has a predictable rate of return. Um, you can borrow against it. You know, it's like, again, it's like having a second house kind of without all the hassles that come with that. The returns on a permanent life insurance policy are not going to be as good over the long term as they would be if you just stuck your money in, in a diversified stock market ETF and uh, and waited 30 years. But that's, you know, for people who are more risk averse, uh, that's not really the point. You're not trying to maximize your investment. You're trying to make sure that you have that asset there when you need it. And while it's not quite as good as a, a government guaranteed bond or something like that for an F FDIC insured bank account balance, it is definitely less risky than Again, just putting your money in the stock market, especially you know, if the market crashes right before you need that money, you'll have some regrets. 
So one thing I'm wondering is I've heard when using whole life insurance as an investment, it usually only makes sense once you've already maxed out your other registered accounts. Or like you said, when you maybe already have enough savings for retirement, what are your views on that? And when should millennials think about using this as an investment? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, a good way to think about whole life insurance is that it's sort of a plus investment. Once you've taken, you've maxed out your eligibility for all the other tax advantage accounts that you're eligible for. And that includes your 401k so that the $20,500 deductible contribution limit every year, um, that's a lot of money. But if you're hitting that every year, then you should think seriously about whole life insurance because again, it's going to create that kind of parallel bucket of equity that you can tap and that isn't directly correlated with the stock market. So one common situation where you might want a whole life insurance policy is if you have a dependent who will need lifelong care support. So a child with special needs, a relative with special needs, probably not a parent because they realistically won't be around long enough to for that cash value to build up, but definitely a child or someone in your generation that you can, you know, borrow against the policy to help support or even withdraw from the policy to help support that person and pay for their care without, you know, jeopardizing the equity in your home. You don't want to lose your home. It's a really difficult decision if, you know, you're going to be losing your home potentially. The other use case that that isn't as common is if you're going to be subject to the estate tax. So the threshold right now for the federal estate tax in the US is about $12 million. Unfortunately, most people, you know, never never make it that far. And that limit could decrease. It has been lower in the past and it could be lower again. Right now it's not a big issue for a lot of folks. But if you are fortunate enough where you expect to die with assets valued greater than $12 million, then your whole life policy can be used to offset that tax burden. It's a, a guaranteed tax-free benefit for your heirs and they can use it. The estate tax is really steep, I should say. It's like almost almost half of the value of the estate over, over that threshold, I believe. So it's definitely worth it to do whatever you can to reduce that burden if, again, you're fortunate enough to be in that situation. And I guess, what kind of returns are you looking at when you're using this as an investment product? Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it, it's a little bit. <laughs> the short answer is it depends. Whole life insurance is really complicated. Every policy is is different and there's a lot of fine print. It's not just like investing in a stock or an ETF or even a mutual fund. And so the return will, will vary. That said, it is... It's safe to say that after fees and expenses and commissions, potentially, that it's going the long-term return is going to be lower than the historic long-term return of the stock market, like the, the total stock market, which I think depending on how you calculate it is you know, between 8 and 10%. But the big advantage of looking at whole life insurance as an investment is that the return is predictable. For whole life insurance, it is generally fixed. And it is, while it's not quite as safe as as like a government insured bank account or a government bond, it is much safer than picking random stocks and uh, and just hoping that they go up and don't go down. So if you're risk averse and the idea of investing in you know individual stocks makes you queasy, then whole life insurance is definitely something you should look at. I guess another piece I am wondering about is the ability to borrow against it. So that seems like a lot of millennials might like that if they're looking to make a large purchase or if they don't have a lot of other assets. Can you just speak a bit more about that when they could borrow against that money and the use cases? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the overtime, and we should say that you know, whole life insurance takes a long time to build up that cash value. It's like, it's really slow. Basically during the first, and again, every policy is different, but during those first years, the first decade, even longer, that cash value is going to be really, really slow to build. Most of the premiums that you pay are going to go toward the actual death benefit, you know, the insurance component. And as a sidebar, that's why whole life insurance is so much more expensive than term life insurance, because you're paying for lifelong protection. Like the policy is going to pay out when you die, because it's it's always going to be in effect as long as you pay the premiums. And and you're also putting money essentially into an investment account that has a guaranteed rate of return. So the way the insurance company works that is 
because it takes the premiums that you pay early on and puts them toward the death benefit so that it, it has more time to invest those premiums and make sure there's enough money to pay your death benefit. And then the cash value is kind of like a bonus on top of that. But if you keep your policy in force for 20, 30 years, you're going to have a pretty good nest egg. And, and then the cash value starts to build pretty quickly at a certain point because it starts to, you know, compounding interest, right? Uh, it sort of takes off um, if you can wait that long. But you can use that money to, you can borrow against it within certain restrictions, but you can do anything with that loan basically. And it's generally tax free. So you can use it again, it's kind of like a home equity loan, but you don't have the risk of the bank taking your house. If you stop paying the loan, the worst thing that happens is you reduce the death benefit. If you don't pay back the loan by the time you die, the death benefit is reduced by the outstanding amount of the loan. There is an interest rate on the loan and it's not nothing. I've seen like 8%, which you know is better than credit cards certainly, but it's probably not as good as you could do on like a home equity line of credit. And you can use that loan for the proceeds of the loans for pretty much anything you want. And you can withdraw from the policy as well. You can also can either top it back up or not. There are, if you do that early on, there are pretty significant charges involved called surrender charges. And again, that gets really complicated. It's really specific to the individual policy, but basically you don't want to take any of your cash value in the first, I'd say 10 or even 15 years. After that, it gets a little bit more forgiving. And finally, you can use the cash value of your whole life insurance to pay your policies premiums. So as you get older, maybe you're after retirement, you're living on a fixed income, your income is lower, you can kind of draw down your policy over time and really reduce that monthly expense that you've been carrying up until that point. So now that we've talked about all the different kinds, can you walk through how someone would think about how much life insurance to get? I know that there's a really complicated calculation with present values and a lot of assumptions, but I've also heard that there's kind of a short answer where using just standard assumptions for inflation, interest rates, and your paycheck, you can kind of end up with almost 10 to 15 times your gross income. What are your thoughts on this? Do you kind of have a short method? That's true. Yeah. And that's a great way to think about it. If you don't want to bother with inflation calculations and expectations that may or may not pan out, I'd say the the sort of living dangerously threshold is 10 times your gross income. If you want to be a little bit more conservative, 15 times could be a safer bet. So if you make, let's say, $80,000 a year before taxes, that's $800,000 policy if you use the 10x method or uh, $1.2 million if you use the 15x method. That is, again, everyone's situation is different, but that's a lot of money, or I should say it sounds like a lot of money. It's not a ton of money in terms of income replacement in the grand scheme of things, but it's probably going to be enough to um, keep your dependents you know, fed and, and clothed and, and maybe even cover their education and, and also address any of the jointly held debts that might survive you. There's a little bit more complicated method that a lot of people like to use called the DIME method. D-I-M-E stands for debt, income, mortgage, and education. So the idea here is that you add up each letter represents a type of expense or income in the case of income. You add those all up to get the amount of coverage that you need. So debt would include jointly held debts, including a mortgage. You can, if you have dependents, you can include things like childcare expenses in there because those are really, you know, hefty expenses. Income is your gross annual income multiplied by the number of years that your uh, surviving partner or dependents might need to live off of it, which, you know, is an assumption that you have to make. But if you're not sure where to start, 10 or 15 is fine. Then your mortgage, a mortgage is such a big debt that it's usually considered separately. And education is future college education expenses or private secondary education if if you're paying for that. So of course, the dime method gets you a higher number than just 10xing or 15xing your income. But it is a way to kind of account for all the big life expenses that you're not going to be around to cover. And uh, so that can provide some peace of mind if that's what you need. The last thing that I want to talk to you about today is investment planning with kids. So for some of our listeners who either have kids or are planning to in the future, let's talk about some of the things that they may want to consider, starting with, should they open a joint taxable investment account for their kids? What are your thoughts on that? 
Uh, yeah, great question. And I think that's an instinct for a lot of new parents who are kind of financially savvy to open an investment account for their kids right off the bat. I would say you don't need to do that right away. It shouldn't be a priority when your kids are really little. Frankly, it's of no use to them for the first few years of life as an educational tool because they'll be too young to understand it. Kids understand more about money than we give them credit for, but you know, a, a three-year-old is going to have a limited understanding of that. And more importantly, well, I should say that the higher priority on the investment side for new children is to open and fund tax advantage education accounts right away, 529 account or a covered L account. And if you, we were talking about whole life insurance, if you're inclined, there can be advantages to taking out a life insurance policy on your kid as well. The the benefit of that is that it doesn't uh, count as an asset for them, whereas a custodial investment account will count as an asset for them down the road. That could the fact that they have this this asset that has value could affect their eligibility for financial aid from a college that they're going to, and that can make a huge difference in your out of pocket cost or um, how much you have to borrow to finance their education. So I would say hold off on the custodial investment account until the kids are a little bit older. If you want to invest on their behalf, the order of priority should be education savings accounts that have tax advantages, and then maybe. Uh, small whole life insurance policy. If and when you have kids, you'll definitely get a whole bunch of stuff in the mail about like Gerber life insurance policies and you can evaluate that when, when it comes. That was great. Thank you so much for joining us today. So before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about your work? Sure. So you can find all of my writing on moneycrashers.com, write about credit cards, banking, insurance, investing, a lot of pretty much everything we talked about today I've written about. And you can find me on on LinkedIn as well if you want to get in touch professionally. But yeah, this is great. I had a great time. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.